From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Spring runoff is the lifeblood of Colorado's rivers. It's also sandbag season in the town of Dolores in the southwestern part of the state. We'll be fine during the day. And then about 3.30 or 4 o'clock, it's like somebody on the hill turns a spigot on and here comes the water. And then we'll go through hours of flooding and just in the streets in the city, behind our schools, around our schools. We've got hundreds of sandbags already up trying to divert the water. Today, snowpack, snowmelt, flooding, and climate change. Then, winemaking in the face of climate change. We're seeing an earlier harvest because of the heat. It's advancing ripening. And it's also creating lower alcohol wines. We revisit our visit to a unique winery in Palisade. Understanding the challenges of climate change is a vital part of staying informed. That's why we're asking you to financially support CPR's Climate Solutions Reporting. Invest in the future of fact-based climate reporting at CPR.org climate. Climate change is a global issue with undeniable local impact. Sign up for CPR News Climate Weekly for a digest of fact-based reporting about the environment in and affecting Colorado. Sign up at CPR.org climateweekly. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado's generous snowpack has begun to melt. That will send water across the thirsty west, but there's also the risk of floods. Let's begin in Montezuma County in the southwestern corner of the state, where flood risk is already reality. Here's CPR's Tom Hess. In Dolores, people spent Easter Sunday filling sandbags, Reese Blinko, superintendent of Dolores Schools, said it was all hands on deck to try and redirect water cascading from the canyon above. We'll be fine during the day, and then about 3.30 or 4 o'clock, it's like somebody on the hill turns a spigot on, and here comes the water. And then we'll go through hours of flooding, and just in the streets in the city, uh, behind our schools, around our schools, hundreds of sandbags already up, trying to divert the water into different areas. We've got pumps running. We're moving water as fast as we can to keep from damage being done. The snowpack around Dolores is well above average. That's great news for the Dolores River, but bad news for the water's first stop, the high school gym, which will need a new floor for the second time in less than five years. The gym was built underground level, uh, which in hindsight may not have been the best thing to do. So we have water just literally coming up, percolating up. We literally had to bore a hole and get into our French drain system underneath the gym floor. And now we're trying to pump that water out as fast as we can, too. But it looks like that gym's going to be, the floor's going to be lost. We've already had a few insurance adjusters out, and uh, we're pumping water. We're trying to dry it with fans, but I, it's probably a lost cause. But we'll we'll keep trying. Montezuma County spokeswoman Vicki Schaefer says emergency managers are keeping their eye on the Dolores River itself, should it overflow its banks. For now, the problem comes from above, affecting about four blocks of town. We're not really concerned about the water coming out of the river at this point, but since Dolores sits down in a canyon, the issue that we're having right now is runoff from above the canyon, 
over the weekend, we had quite a bit of water come over the hillside on the north side of town and come down into a neighborhood in town. And we used all the sandbags that we had filled up last week, plus about 2,000 more. The way the water was coming down, it hit the local preschool, and so we sandbagged around to divert water from going in that building. Then the water kept moving down the street, so we had to basically build sandbag berms and some dirt berms as well. Blinko says this year's runoff shows in real time some of the shortfalls of the Dolores School campus. The line between in the floodplain and not in the floodplain kind of runs right through the middle of school, and it puts the secondary school in the floodplain, and the elementary school is not in the floodplain. The high school dates back to 1950. The town of Dolores may ask voters this fall to pay for a new one, safe from the spring melt. Some people wanted to move it out of town on the hill, but a lot of them said, you know, we like our little community, we like our schools in town, and we want to see it stay. And we're willing to support you, but you need to stay in town. So we heard that loud and clear, and with that said, we are going to use the modern miracles of architecture. Uh, We'll have to build these new facilities three foot above ground level, which will put it out of the floodplain. So yeah, our our buildings will have quite the foundation. Blinko thinks the sandbags should hold for a while. At the emergency management office, Schaefer says they expect water for weeks. There is still quite a bit of snow up there, measured in feet, not inches. And it depends on the weather, too. If we continue to have these warm days and nights that don't go below freezing, then it's going to come down pretty fast. If the weather should happen to cool off, we might not have as many problems. And, you know, if we get another storm, that could cause some additional problems as well. Dolores isn't alone. Communities from Hayden to Montrose that sit below heavy snowpack are also braced. And once the snow's melted, all eyes turn to the rivers. Montezuma County Sheriff Steve Nowlin fears river debris. Stuff that's swept in can pile up at bridges, creating makeshift dams that pose a hazard to those downstream. That energy from the water can cause uh, that to give way. If any bridges give way, that just brings all that debris downriver, and it will collect at other points where they create an unnatural dam within the river or is actually uh, blocked by another private bridge that goes across the river. Nowlin will take survey flights later this month to assess the runoff and any problems that might be collecting above town. Meanwhile, cooler weather this week should slow the melt, yet may add to the snow in the mountains. I'm Tom Hess, CPR News. Tom is our Western Slope reporter. Now a statewide look at spring snowpack. Russ Schumacher directs the Colorado Climate Center at CSU in Fort Collins. Hi, Russ. Good morning, Ryan. Great to be with you. I understand you've traditionally described Colorado's snowpack as well-behaved. What does it mean to have a well-behaved snowpack? Yeah, I think in most years, uh, what tends to happen is we, you know, we don't go to the peak of snowpack and then all of a sudden it gets warm and it all runs off at once. And so that process takes place over the course of weeks and that helps, uh, you know, to mitigate the, the risk of flooding in a lot of places. So even in years when there is a, a lot of snow up in the mountains, like is the case this year, uh, we tend not to have to worry all that much about major problems from flooding. And that's because there's fluctuation. In other words, there are some cold stretches and there are some warm stretches. So it's kind of metering it out. 
Yep, exactly. And that's the that's the kind of situation that we like to see is where, you know, like over the last couple of weeks here, we had some very warm days um, last week, but then it cooled off for a few days and then some warm days this week. Now it's going to cool off again. And that really helps that that process to where it isn't it isn't all rushing down all at once. And it, you know, we melt off some of it at a time. The the situation we don't want to see is to have, you know, a, a, kind of like what happened last year, where we have an extended period in the spring where it's sunny and dry and no precipitation and warm. And then that really accelerates the, the melt out of the snow. And then and then it can come down really quickly. Not that this year's pattern is doing any favors for folks in Montezuma County. But um, would you say that given the pressures of climate change, that the snowpack is less well behaved. Is it rowdier uh, over the long term? <laughs> yeah, I mean that's a good question. It's you know really what we've been seeing over the last uh, you know, since two thousand or so is not very many good years. Uh, a lot more uh, dry years than wet years. Um, but then of course this year, um, especially to our west in like California and Utah, just, you know, incredible amounts of snow. And, and, you know, to some extent that's true in Colorado as well. It's one of the biggest snowpacks we've had, especially in the southwestern part of the state, um, in, in decades really. All right. So that speaks to the precipitation, uh, and this is a generous year then, but in terms of melt, when we do have moisture, what what might we expect over the long haul? And, and I see that this is really two points, right? It's the question of moisture, how much we get, if we get it, and then it's behavior once it has landed on a mountaintop. Yeah, that's right. So the, you know, I think the long term situation in Colorado, when we look at a warming climate um, and the southwest U.S. in general, is, you know, some of what we've been seeing since 2000 or so, where in the good years, when we do get a lot of snow, um, you know, what we've been seeing then is is warming temperatures, which means that the, the melt happens earlier in the spring. And so the timing is disrupted. And so even in the in the years when we do get a lot of snow, that water doesn't go as far or it's maybe not as predictable as it used to be. And then on, on the flip side, when we have years um, when when the snow is not as plentiful, not as generous, then the warmer temperatures, the warmer air tries to, to suck that moisture out of the, the soils, the forests, um, the snowpack, uh, all the reservoirs, all of those things, and then the water doesn't go as far. So that's that's kind of the the you know not so good trend that has been happening and that likely will it continue out into the future is that in the years when we when we get a good snowpack, that water doesn't go as far as it might have in, in cooler times in the past. And then the years when we don't get as much snow, then the impacts are even worse uh, in terms of drought and water supply. Let's talk briefly about the role that dust plays in how mm-hmm. snowpack behaves. It, it kind of makes it rowdier, doesn't it? Yeah. So the dust on snow has been an issue that that's been um, getting increasing attention in the in recent years. So what can often happen, and again, this is especially in the in the southwestern part of the state, although in some cases it can extend all the way up to the front range, is that dust uh, blowing dust from the southwestern U.S. will will come up in one of these big winter storms and then get get deposited with the snow uh, in the mountains. And and what that dust does is it 
it makes the snowpack darker or makes the snow surface darker such that it then absorbs the sunlight more readily and then it melts or or sublimates goes directly to vapor more quickly so basically it makes the snowpack uh disappear more quickly than if it was this nice pristine uh white snowpack that is reflecting all of that sunlight um back upward so what the dust can do is it, it can accelerate the the meltout process when it gets in the snow, um, you know, so the, 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 so there's a group in in Silverton, uh, the Colorado Dust on Snow study that goes around and makes these measurements every spring. And they saw the the storm in early April a, after what had been quite a pristine uh, and not very dusty snowpack. Uh, that storm in the, the first week of April there did bring a lot of dust into uh, the mountain snowpack. Since then, I think it's been covered up in a lot of areas with fresh snow, which is good. Um, but, you know, once that gets uncovered again, then it then it, it can have this effect of of basically accelerating the the melting process. Are we seeing any sort of trends towards dustier snow? I think that's the that's the a big question that still remains. I mean, it, it, in part, like this issue was not, I think, studied all that much until until recently, and so the scientists who dive into this um, look, you know, have have really been looking at it a lot in recent years to try and figure out uh, if that's the case, you know, and and, and the challenge with it is is the you know, the, the, the source of the dust is quite distant. It's not within Colorado. It's somewhere further off to the Southwest. So it's, it's this remote effect where the conditions on the ground and the soil conditions, say in, in Arizona or Northern New Mexico or Utah are then having, having big impacts on, on our snow here in Colorado. Very quickly, Russ, it seems to me that if the nature of the snowpack is going to change, become indeed less well-behaved, uh, this is a question to a certain extent about adaptation. That is, we will see new patterns and we will have to adapt. And I won't have you weigh in on the very controversial subject of dams or reservoirs. Uh, but in a few seconds, do you think that idea of adaptation is relevant here? Very much so. Um, I mean, I think we've seen over the last couple decades of how how people in Colorado and the West have had to adapt to, to some very serious droughts. Um, and I think also the the timing of the of the water is another big issue because even if we get big snowpacks, if it melts out earlier, mm-hmm. then the water's not there in the river when you really need it in the hot part of the summer. So that's another you know adaptation that that, that people will need to consider. That is state climatologist Russ Schumacher, and Colorado Matters continues in a bit as winemakers adapt to a changing climate. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Decades of drought have drained our water savings along the Colorado River. Going back to 30 years ago when this was full of water, back then I was even a little bit scared. And now it's like, where's the water? I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis. I host CPR's new podcast about what we can do to save the river that shaped the West. Find Parched wherever you get podcasts. Parched is supported in part by the Grand Canyon Trust. Wine won't be the same because of climate change. Grapes, of course, are influenced by temperature, the availability of water, even wildfire smoke. To see how vintners are adapting, and how consumers might have to as well, I headed to Palisade, Colorado, wine country here. 
last fall. That's where I met an innovator, Kaibab Sauvage of Sauvage Spectrum, a label that, as you'll hear, partially owes its existence to climate change. Kaibab, it's nice to meet you. Ryan, nice to meet you. Part of the story here is diversifying. I mean, you grow grapes, you also grow peaches. I imagine that's helpful given that agriculture can be so unpredictable. Absolutely, it is. It's huge. Um, we started with just grapes, and we, we quickly saw that the crops were too inconsistent, and so then we diversified into um, tree fruit, which also it can be inconsistent. And then more recently, we launched the winery, so we have three levels of diversification. Is that what it takes to survive? I believe so, yes. I mean, I've, I've seen a lot of people not be able to hang on into this industry because it's challenging. It's farming, it's hard work, and it's unpredictable. What is the effect of climate change, specifically heat, on a winery? Well, it's fascinating. It's really hard on the guys because it's hot out there. And so we have to set the schedule completely different. We start early and we try to get done as soon as we can because heat's hard on people. But we're seeing it change the numbers on the grapes, too. We're seeing an earlier harvest because of the heat. It's advancing ripening. And it's also creating lower alcohol wines, There's also less of a difference between the highs during the day and the lows at night. It just doesn't get as cool. That's right. That diurnal shift, we're not seeing it this year. And that's a huge part in retaining the acidity in the wines. And so by not having that diurnal shift, we're losing our acids, which means we have to pick earlier at lower sugar levels. And by doing that, we're going to end up with lower alcohol wines. Lower sugar levels mean lower alcohol wines. That's right. Fascinating. And, and is there any way to compensate for that, or you just have to say, that's it? I mean, in theory, you could ameliorate, they call it, and add sugar, but we don't like to play with the numbers like that. And so we're going to make a low-alcohol wine, and it's the season it is. I mean, that's the terroir of a region is you can manipulate wines, or you can let it be the true expression of the area you're in. And so... That's what we believe in doing. In that way, wine can be an expression of a place. It can also be very much an expression of the climate and the climate change of a place. Absolutely. Huh. Aren't we in one of the most elevated wine-growing areas as well? We're in one of the higher regions in the world, absolutely. There's some vineyards here close to 7,000 feet. Yeah. We're around 4,700 feet here in Palisade, so... And we're not far from the Colorado River. That's huge. That's the only reason we can farm here. That's your water source. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And we are in a very significant drought. Mm -hmm. We know that uh, the federal government is uh, coming in and saying to Colorado River water users, you got to have a plan for a world with less water. How does that affect you as a grower? Well, it's huge. I mean, grapes are already very water conscious crop. Really? Peaches, for example, use probably maybe 30 to 40 percent more water. And then like even a hay field is going to be using almost probably 80 percent more water. And um, we have taken steps to conserve water. We've converted from flood irrigation to micro sprinklers. And so we're trying to mitigate these things all along the way. We use soil moisture meters so that we're not over irrigating. Are there ways in which the heat benefits you? There are. So certain varieties that struggle to ripen It allows them to ripen sooner, and so we can get full maturity on them. Does that mean you could grow different kinds of grapes here then? Absolutely. So grapes have seasons that they come in. So Chardonnay is a very early grape. Cabernet Sauvignon is a very late grape. And so maybe 
Cabernet Sauvignon doesn't always reach maturity here, but on a year like this, it will have really nice flavors. Oh, interesting. Now, we've spoken of heat. Maybe we should talk about the opposite of that, and that is also a threat to growers, and that is freezing cold. Yeah. To what extent, then, does climate change play a role in the risk of freezing? It does, yeah. As we warm up, we're less likely to see these frost events midwinter. Uh-huh. Um, if we hit negative five in January, which we can at times, most of this classic vinifera won't take it. It will winter kill down to the ground. Is that less likely then? It would be less likely with a warmer climate, absolutely. Uh huh. But that doesn't mean you haven't faced your share of freezes. Oh, we've had plenty. Uh, 2013, we lost 75% of our crop. And 2020, we lost probably 90% of our crop because of frost. Ouch. Yeah, hurts. You have, as a result, gone to hybrid grapes. At least a quarter of your grapes are hybrid grapes. Now, my understanding is that hybrids were something that uh, old wine families might roll their eyes at. (laughs) Even though you've been in this for decades, you're a relative whippersnapper, (laughs) Kaibab. But talk to me about the role that hybrids can play in the face of unpredictable climate and weather. So hybrids are a great tool for exactly that. A hybrid doesn't necessarily have to be cold hardy. You're selecting a desirable trait and you're isolating it to make those grapes more robust at whatever you need. We happen to have a cold issue here. And so we're looking to places that are colder like Minnesota. Wait, there's wine in Minnesota? <laughs> there is. They okay. have a very robust growing region, but they're not growing varieties you've ever heard of. They're growing these obscure varietals that they created, Petite Pearl, Verona, Aramella, Vignole. These are all varieties the most traditional wine consumers have never heard of or tried, mm-hmm. and they're missing out because they're delicious, and they're so good, and we're pioneering them here. I understand we're going to do a little measuring. Is that right? Yes, and so going back to... Um, this early advanced ripening, as we get closer to harvest, we need to check in on parameters. There's kind of three key parameters we look at. We're going to measure two of those today. We're going to measure the bricks, which is a fancy word for percent sugar in solution. So say it were 20 bricks, there's 20% sugar in that grape. And sugar is important if you like the kick. It is. (laughs) Absolutely. So we're going to have lower sugars this year, like we were discussing. 60% of the sugar turns into alcohol. So at 20 bricks, you're going to have a uh, 12% alcohol. A 12% alcohol. And what else are we going to measure? Uh, pH. We're going to look at pH. Um, Is that a soil thing? No, it's the pH of the grapes. Uh And so depending on what you're making, like a traditional sparkling wine, you'd be looking for pH around 3. A rosé, 3.3 maybe. A red, 3.5. That's kind of our numbers. And as ripening advances, the pH goes down and the bricks go up. Good wine really has to be just right, doesn't it? It's kind of Goldilocks. Goldilocks, indeed. And you have to be adept, too, because not every year's the same. And so to consistently produce good wine with these challenges of climate change is very difficult. And we're not going to make exactly the same wine every year. And the consumer needs to understand that. But <gasps> it needs to be a good, balanced wine is key. It's fascinating you say that, because when I find a good wine, my instinct is... I want this all the time, the exact same way, never change. And you're telling the consumer, especially in the face of climate change, you've got to change. Well, they just have to be more open. Uh Maybe not change, but understanding that this affects everyone. And, you know, maybe you're going to find that it changes the wine in a positive way that you didn't realize and you like and enjoy. Lower alcohol for one. It's good for all of us. (laughs) 
To get to the grapes, Kaibab Sauvage and his business partner, Patrick Matashevsky, climbed into a pedicab with me. These bike taxis are finding a foothold in Palisade. Patrick, what's all the netting I've been seeing over the grapes? Oh, so these guys are putting the bird netting up um, because the, the birds are attracted to the grapes once they... They're they, like us. They are. They, and, and Kaibab can tell you all about how they evolved with the grapes. So what happens is, you know, when the grapes are first um, on the vine, they're so acidic. You, you wouldn't want to eat them. The birds don't want to eat them. What's going to happen is that they're going to go through verasion and they start changing color and that signifies that the sugar is starting to go up, that acid is dropping out and the birds are very hungry. So that, that's about the time where they start eating the, the grapes if we don't net them. Okay, and we know that that whole process is happening earlier, right? It is. Yeah. We are in this pedicab and we're heading away now from your wine tasting room which is to say that it's a sort of checkerboard of vineyards, huh? Yes, and the, the way they've done it, it's everything is planted very specific to the varietal, to that microclimate in, the, in that exact area. So that's why you notice, um, you know, we have nine acres at the Savage Block over there, Savage Block, um, but that, that's great for reds. You might find the whites up a little bit higher. You might find them a little bit farther west. So it, wow. it's just very specific. We're talking what grows where. the difference um, of, of city blocks, really, as microclimates. Correct. That, that's very correct. I mean, there, there's all types of uh, geographic differences. You know, you, you find these um, little, like, sinks. You find these kind of rolling hills. You see the mesas. So the, the temperature differential is, is quite vast in this very, very small area. We arrive at the vines Kaibab Sauvage and his business partner, Patrick Matashevsky, want to check up on. And so typically what we would do, we're going to do a condensed version for you guys, is we would walk three or four rows like this under the net, and we would randomly take a berry sample. So we're getting a random sample that's representative of the entire crop. Um, we're going to take a shortcut today and pick a nice representative cluster that we'll pick. You've taken, oh, probably 20 grapes there, and they're dusty looking. They're kind of opaque. And so we bring a Ziploc bag to take our sample in. You want to hold that? And then we're going to juice them. Oh, you're going to juice them in the Ziploc bag. little Lucille ball action, but with your hands. <laughs> you got it. So yeah, we're looking to produce that juice, get that skin contact in there. So right now, it's like we're making a rosé. But if we were to leave it on the skins, you're going to get... It would become a red. full-blown red wine. So yeah, we're, we're about there. Enough to kind of pull a sample. Yep. Get so, your refractometer. So yeah, we've got the trusty refract. A portable version. Yes. And so that measures the sugars in solution, and it's got a little scale in there you can see different numbers on. So we'll put a little drop on there, and then we're going to look through the eyepiece. Pouring and it'll tell us. the juice into a channel at one end of the device. You've got to hold it up in the light, and there's um, it's kind of like a... Uh, and now you're using it almost like a telescope. Yep. Yeah. And what I'm reading here 
is about 23, 23 and a half almost. So. And the light is helping you determine that. Yeah, with the refract, it, it's going to allow us to actually read that graph um, that's that's in there to, to measure it. And what is that? Is that a good number? You know, um, 23 and a half in, you know, the way I was taught, that's that's kind of like your, your white grape numbers. Um, and what you would do is you pick your whites at 23, you pick your reds at 26. But there's a climate change factor here. Um, I'm very interested in watching the pH and our, our last numbers that we ran last week showed that the pH was shooting up the TA the acid was starting to drop out so with that being said it might just be a little bit lower alcohol wine which is completely on trend with what the market wants well how soon until the grapes that we are standing next to we need to pick these we need tomorrow. to pick them <laughs> we'll pick them tomorrow boom yeah we have an answer there it is. You guys want to try them? Most people sure. are blown away by how sweet wine grapes are. They think, you know, they oh think my a goodness, store it's like grapes. eating jam. Uh huh. When someone says a wine is jammy, that's based on partially when it's harvested. The longer you let them hang, the more of those jammy characteristics develop. Well, I hate to say it, but we've got a jam. <laughs> Thanks for being with us, both of you. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you. Kaibab Sauvage and Patrick Matashevsky are adapting to climate change at Sauvage Spectrum Winery in Palisade. We spoke last September. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from listener-supported CPR News and KRCC.